I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. It's your man, Manny Faces, the editor, host, and co-producer of Newsbeat, the fantastic award-winning podcast where we meld the worlds of social justice journalism and music, uh, incorporating sometimes uh, full lyrical contributions by brilliant independent hip-hop artists and sometimes just some mood music to set the tone for some of these sometimes unfortunately difficult episodes sort of like the one we're getting into today i've brought with us of course our uh team members rashed mian the managing editor of newsbeat chris Tawarski, the editor-in-chief what's up fellas how you doing all right what's going on i'm glad to actually do it this way yeah yeah, yeah. this is something new we're trying obviously uh, any watchers or listeners of the show have noticed that we've been putting some more things into the video realm starting with well not starting with but maybe most notably our very in-depth interview with presidential candidate dr cornell west a few episodes ago Uh, and so we're continuing on that journey together to try to incorporate some video into this but we're also doing something where we're not doing the regular scripted intro to an episode so we wanted to kind of give a little bit of context with this one Uh, it requires that i think uh, we'd agree and if it's something that works better and folks dig, maybe we'll do it like this way moving forward. Uh, this episode, as you see titled on your app of choice there, the 9-11 Redux, Will Israel and Hamas Lead to a New War on Terror? So obviously there are things happening out in this wild, wild world uh, that have been the front and center focus of media and folks who consume media for a few weeks now. Uh, and of course, Newsbeat always takes a, when we dive into sort of these current events or things that are happening on a global scale, we take a little bit of a different angle. And of course, we're doing so this episode. Rashad, why don't you kind of kick us off and, and let folks know why we're doing this episode and, and why, why we're doing it like this. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as we were following the, the news out of Israel and Gaza from October 7th to today, what sort of became clear is this sort of deep seated connection to 9-11, um, mm. not only in the comparisons of the attack in Israel on October 7th by Hamas, people saying that it's their version of 9-11, but also just the rhetoric and the way in which officials and lawmakers are using very similar talking points or themes and how that's very much mirrors what happened over 20 years ago in the United States. And Mm. not only just 20 years ago, but the subsequent years with all the ways in which the U.S., along with some of its allies, prosecuted the so-called war on terror, what started with going after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and trying to get them out and take them out, but then bled into so many other parts of the region, into Africa, and also back at home in the form of really Orwellian types of policies that we're still living through to today. So I'm going to let Chris jump in, but the idea here is to sort of not just warn people. I know people who listen to this podcast are smart, but you know, as you're sifting through the media and all the different types of content that you're seeing, seeing about this conflict, just to be careful about the sort of propaganda and every country has propaganda. It's not to say like, you know, right. uh, Israel is saying something that we just disagree with, or Hamas is saying something we disagree with every country prosecuting a war is doing it through a sort of propaganda lens because they have to sure. sell it to the public and to the broader broader world. So we just want right. people to be aware of things to look out for and also not only just to look out for, just so you, you understand the, 
what's happening more, but also because as we fear, this could lead to the, the widest war that we've seen in our lifetimes. And we've seen a lot of bad stuff already. Yeah. And, and, and in that respect, Rochelle and I have been talking about this episode for the past two weeks, and we sort of view it as potentially one of our most important, just mm. for that reason. You know, we consider this a declaration. We consider this a warning. We consider this a calling out to the public, to you listeners, you know, to pay attention, you know, very closely. As Rashad said, we're hearing the same rhetoric we heard uh, from Bush, you know, in the days after 9-11, you know, axis of evil is one of the key terms that uh, jumped mm. out to me. Uh, seeing it on the news the other day, the lead up to war with all its flaws before going into I- Iraq, you know, the, the misrepresentation of the truth, you know, the bastardization of the truth, you know, in the subsequent years, you know, we've covered many of this on, on the show, the attack on whistleblowers, which to me is an attack on the truth itself, um, right. the manipulation of the messaging through the mainstream media. And the stakes couldn't be higher. I mean, it's, it, it seems like it's cliche to say at this point. I mean, you know, every war, I feel the stakes are higher. But this time around, I mean, look at what we're talking about, uh, to, to Rashad's point. A broader, a broader war. Um, you know, we still have Russia and Ukraine war raging. You know, no one wants to talk about this. We have nuclear weapons mixed into all, right. these, all these conflicts. Right. Just floating around willy-nilly. Just floating around. You know. Yeah. So. I echo uh, Rashad's uh, sentiment on the importance of this, and we just wanted to try to break the format a little bit. We felt that it really demanded it. So to that, Rashad, why don't you let me know as a person, a layman, I guess, uh, listening, what are some of the parallels you see? What are some of the, besides the rhetoric and the, and because that's all standard, like I said, standard war procedure, right? And again, we shouldn't have to do this, but let me just throw in uh, the disclaimer that everyone has to disclaim and say that everything that's happened is horrible. What we're purposely doing is looking at, well, what are the ramifications of whatever happens out of this whole situation? And how do they parallel some of the not so obvious effects on our lives that we saw post 9-11? Is that, that fair, that accurate to, to pose? Yeah, no. And I, look, yeah. And I obviously I agree with your, your sentiment there and just, you know, the, you know, the tragedy that unfolded on October 7th in Israel and, right. and everything that's happened since. Obviously, I just think that anybody looking at this just from that perspective, the sort of disproportionate way in which this war is being enforced and how people in, in Gaza and Palestinians are basically fleeing for their lives. They really have no opportunity. They have no choice really to go anywhere because of the, just the constant bombardment. It really is just like a horrific time. And just like every time I'm on Twitter or whatever, my heart's just bleeding out. It's just been, it's been horrific. Um, you know, some of the, the, the things that related to 9-11, obviously Chris mentioned the axis of evil, which is a famous, like, just like an infamous speech that George Bush gave shortly after 9-11. Um, it was written by David Frum, who has since become like this like liberal darling. I think maybe the Atlantic he works for now. I don't even remember. But the speech was written and it was basically connecting Iran, anybody else who we deem an enemy to this Al-Qaeda network, even though they had nothing to do with anything that happened on, on 9-11, right? And also, you know, they can, you know, with Chris mentioned what's going on with Ukraine and Russia and China, Putin meeting with Xi as this is all unfolding. Again, this sort of axis of evil stuff we're talking about and obviously the, the connection with Iran and Hamas. Um, but just in terms of the way in which they're talking about people, I know the rhetoric is going to be the rhetoric, but dehumanizing people, 
the, the way which Palestinians are being dehumanized, talking about as animals. These are the same kind of stuff that we talked to, that the way in which the U.S. policymakers talked about um, people as as what they claim were terrorists. Not everybody that they talked about as terrorists were actually terrorists. And they use that, obviously, to help sell the war. So if you think every single person in this land that you've never seen, these people that you've never spoken to, you've never interacted with, are these um, uh, these animals that literally bar, bar, cannot... Bar, doing barbaric things, like right. the conjuring the word of barbarians and... Yeah. Right, right. So, yeah. like, for example, uh, when talking about, like, 9-11, I think Jeremy Scahill wrote this in his book, uh, Dirty Wars, that they talked about how these terrorists could gnaw, literally, with their jaws through, like, hydraulic machinery to help take down planes. Like, this is the kind of imagery that was used, and again, it's being used today, not that same example, but just the way in which we talk about people, right? Mm. Like, there's dangers in that. And obviously, things escalate so quickly, and they've already escalated so quickly. After 9-11, we got authorization for use of military force which we're still using today to prosecute other wars, even though none of this stuff is re related to what happened on that day. So there's just so many elements to this that um, are connected. And, you know, we could go on and on, but obviously yeah. when there's this, the drum beats of war are just constantly knocking, right? And they're just feeding us with all this information. You lose sight of everything that's happening. Right. During that time, while they were distracting us with the propaganda, through the media, which was terribly uncritical of uh, the Bush administration during that time, right. they were breaking down what's called the FISA wall, which made mm -hmm. it easier for you know um, intelligence agencies to basically gather our information or investigate us. Right? They, I think, within two weeks of 9/11, they had the Patriot Act ready to go, which was like this this huge broad um, gave them huge broad powers, right? Um, to further surveil and 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 investigate American citizens right. too, and that was passed within a month after nine eleven. Right. Um, so these things again escalated quickly. Soon after nine eleven, they gave approval basically to torture people, to render people, put them in black sites, to never be seen again, which then led to Guantanamo. Right. right. So the 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 warning here is that things escalate, and also the way in which we talk about quote unquote terrorists. And this is something that we're going to get into the episode, right, Chris? This, yeah. The characterization and just the idea that everybody who's the enemy is the terrorist and ways in which we're supposed to stop terrorism is uh, also questionable through the use of war. Right, right. Mm. And, and just on that last point, um, you know, one of our guests uh, is Jenny Walkup Jays, uh, independent scholar, uh, anthropologist, and the author of this incredible paper, uh, Beyond the War Paradigm. That last point, Rashad, that, that you mentioned, it really stuck with me. You'll, you'll all hear it soon, but it's, it's the whole idea that branding a certain eth ethnicity or a country all terrorists, um, mm. you know, and the whole concept of, of then declaring war on terror, you know, it is an unending war, right? Because it's not just the country, right? You're basically waging war or declaring war on an, on an ideology or a concept. So, it becomes very easy for just broad stroke an entire, you know, again, really nation or, mm -hmm. or, or group of people as this horrific subhuman enemy, you know. And I just want to also state that uh, because I think it's very important, you know, I think a lot of uh, American news outlets are, are staying away from 
some of the intricacies here. There's a fear uh, of several different things, but I think it's important to state that October 7th, 9-11, you know, the death of any innocence is obviously a horrific. It is, it is, it is a crime. Um, it is unimaginably unacceptable. But I think when you hear, and again, we're not going to go too much. We'll let, we'll let our guests talk and, and we have, you know, some clips throughout the episode. You know, I just heard a number yesterday about 4,000 children dead right. in Gaza. Right. You know, and for me and Rashad um, and Manny, you know, civilian deaths have always sort of just brought this stuff home. You know, you hear a number of 4,000 children dead, you know, and I don't know what the interview was. I was watching the other night, you know, and, and somebody said, you know, a war crime doesn't justify a war crime. Right. You know, so that's that's one of the yep. things we're trying to get at. And does doesn't justify policies that normalize other war crimes or open up the door exactly. for the use of tactics that could be considered war crimes under another name. But you, you, they, you know, they invent ways to skirt around it or even to, as you said, the AUMF to skirt around Congress declaring war. All these things come out of these things. So it, it opens up this slippery slope that we've seen happen before uh, across the board. Um, we'll get into the episode. I just want to ask one more thing. You know, folks will say this is over there. Yeah, we have involvement. Yeah, we're, you know, making sure uh, we supply money and, and weapons. And we're definitely heavy Israel, you know, pro-Israel from the administration tip. But. Are we going to change policy? Do we have to worry about policies changing here in America? It's not like it was not like 9-11. It's not like it happened on our soil. So why would we be so concerned that we would get into changing policies for a, a war that we're indirectly attached to? You know, there's still danger in this. Yeah. Well, of course, because obviously there's the threat of, you know, Iran getting into this conflict. And then I think us instantly entering yeah. and creating this broader war. You have Iran, you have Saudi Arabia. You have Qatar, you have all the, in Yemen, you already have the Houthi rebels, which are aligned with Iran, trying to strike Israel in, in, in right. different ways. You have Hezbollah right next to, uh, next door. Um, there, this could literally balloon out of control, right? And mm. again, just from a U.S. perspective, I think people sort of dismiss a lot of this stuff as like, because sort of Trump took over the quote unquote, like what he called America first, right? Um, right. which historically has its own you know, horrific undertones, right. right? But this idea of, you know, keeping America out of some of these conflicts. So if you're concerned as a taxpayer, when like, you're just at home, you're just like, you know, going through life, suff suffering economically, just struggling so much. Meanwhile, we are sending so much money, so much of our money to Ukraine, to, you know, we've already done this with Israel, but we also need to think critically about these things. We're sending money to Ukraine, and it just came out in a Time Magazine article where people, advisors really close to Zelensky, basically make it seem like the guy is just, they, they don't think they could win that war, and he's the only one that thinks they could do it, yet we're still mm. sending so much money. Instead of sending money and then saying, okay, let's talk diplomatically about a peace resolution, like right. we're not doing that. And that's like, from a policy perspective, that's what we need to be thinking about. But right. when we're throwing money and we're comparing Putin to Hamas, which Biden did a week or two ago, whenever he gave up that, that Oval Office speech, I think, mm -hmm. it makes it harder, again, the rhetoric, it makes it harder yeah. for us to, as a citizen, to be like, okay, you know, Putin, Hamas, these bad guys, we just got to keep giving money. And then, so obviously, and then obviously just the threat of war, 
our troops yeah. going there and and just driving up stoking te- you know these tensions makes us less safer you know america citizens because it's just gonna create more hostility toward us you know terror groups are, people don't just wake up one day and want to be a terrorist right there's reasons behind it as, as and we're gonna you're gonna hear that in the episode you know as hard as for you to think about it like that they disagree with us because of things that we've done in their countries or to their right. cousins you know we've right. droned funerals and claimed that we were trying to get a militant and we kill people. Right. And what happens? What are the consequences of that? Right? right. So just an entanglement, you know, um, and also just like the consequences to the truth that, you know, what we started with. Daniel Ellsberg warned us years ago with the Pentagon Papers. He said, these were all lies. We were so lies. Fast forward to today, the Afghan Papers came out. And what did they say? That the government lied to us about how winnable the war was. And yet they kept prosecuting the war, even though it, was, it wasn't winnable. So we just need to pay attention to these things. And also, just like one last thing, because this is something that we covered separately when we were a different news organization, is the impact on just like the people at home. You know, I covered a lot about the Muslim American community and just right. like the surveillance, the NYPD surveilling Muslims in places that they didn't even have jurisdiction, um, right. the, the FBI, the CIA doing all of these terrible things. And again, and also the idea of like infiltrating colleges is happening again and people's like free speech and civil liberties, all the thing that all the things that over the last what like what five or six years the right has been on and on about. Like we, <laughs> we must protect free speech, you know, right. all this stuff. And free speech is being attacked again. Like as much you may disagree with what people are saying, but we should not be losing, you know, core civil liberties because of our government's decisions and how they're gonna go about this current conflict. So there are sacrifices, but they do not have to be sacrifices. So just another thing for people to pay attention to as this is ongoing. I appreciate it. As you always know, I learn a lot from these episodes. I learn a lot from your coverage and perspective. And we have two guests in this episode. Just uh, can we just say who they are and then we'll kind of get into it. Yeah, Chris, you want to yes, talk sure. about so, so we're getting <clears throat> uh, who's been a, a guest on several of our episodes, Mark Fallon. He's a visiting scholar at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, the author of Unjustifiable Means, the inside story of how the CIA, Pentagon, and U.S. government conspired to torture. And um, his book, please go back to, to some of those episodes and listen. But, you know, the, the, the phrase that he used back in the day was just this roundup, this mass roundup of what he, what he called dirt farmers. You know, just mm. people who were, who were there who likely had nothing to do with any type of quote, terrorism or, or act of, of violence or anything like that rounded up. And as Rashad mentioned, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these people ended up in, in Guantanamo, mm-hmm. uh, never had charges formally brought against them, uh, never had a trial. And so he's one of the guests on this. And, and again, Jenny Walkup Jays, the anthropologist and author of the paper Beyond the War Paradigm, are two guests for this one. All right, gentlemen, anything else to add? One last thing I'm going to, I'm going to say, and this is a quote from the Senate torture report. Okay. Again, obviously after 9-11, we tortured a lot of people. Yeah. I think Obama said that. And, uh, you know, just horrific abuses right. that continues today. People are still in Guantanamo who don't belong there also. But the, the author of the torture report said, it is precisely at these times of national crisis that our government must be guided by the lessons of our history. Mm. This history we're talking about is not that long ago, and we're still mm. living it. To see it potentially be extended and to think about the potential draconian measures that will come out of it scares yeah. the hell out of me. 
And that's why we also want to do this episode. That's fair. Good luck getting the government to guide us to anything uh, right now. But hopefully uh, these words of wisdom from our guests and from our esteemed journalists as well reach uh, into the places that they need to. So here it is, y'all. 9-11 Redux. Will Israel and Hamas lead to a new war on terror? Some of these regimes have been pretty quiet since September the 11th. But we know their true nature. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil an axis of evil constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world just as the united states would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of pearl harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9/11 israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with hamas after the horrific attacks of october 7 calls for a ceasefire are calls for israel to surrender to hamas to surrender to terrorism to surrender to barbarism that will not happen ladies and gentlemen the bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war this is a time for war a war for our common future today we draw a line between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism it is a time for everyone to decide where they stand Israel will stand against the forces of barbarism until victory. I hope and pray that civilized nations everywhere will back this fight. Because Israel's fight is your fight. Because if Hamas and Iran's axis of evil win, you will be their next target. That's why Israel's victory will be your victory. Let's go back prior to 9/11. to the October 12, 2000 attack on the USS Cole where we had 17 sailors that were killed in Aden, Yemen and at the time I was the chief of counterintelligence for the Europe, Africa and Middle East division of the NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. The agency responsible for criminal investigations, counterintelligence and counterterrorism for the Navy and Marine Corps. So the USS Cole was attacked on my watch. And within the Navy in the Marine Corps it had this type of effect that the rest of the country felt after 9/11 17 sailors were killed when they were having lunch that day in Aden Yemen and we almost lost the USS Cole there that would have been a trophy to bin Laden and so we had already undergone a sea change within NCIS to look at the threat differently that was posed to our service members particularly 
September 11th uh, occurred and frankly, we lost our way. Uh, we were enraged. Uh, we were, it was a horrific attack. We lost 3,000 people on September 11th. World Trade Center, the Pentagon, the plane crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania that was heading to the Capitol. Good morning, everybody. I am Jane Hansen in the News Channel 4 uh, studio this morning to bring you some news. We are looking at a picture now of the World Trade Center, and we have an eyewitness on the telephone who tells us that he has seen an airplane crash into the World Trade Center. So while embers were still burning at the World Trade Center, decisions were made that altered the course of history. When emotions are high, rationality is low. Okay, I'm a former hostage negotiator instructor. All right, so we try to teach people to, to, to tamper the tempers down because you don't think straight. You're under cognitive load when you're angry. All right, so, so uninformed and ill-informed decisions were made after September 11th. And I'll, and I'll just mention a couple because they, it has a bearing today in Israel and Gaza because people are angry and they rightfully should be. Horrific crimes are committed. There's deaths on both sides. And, and so people are now uh, reacting emotionally rather than rationally. And so after September 11th, uh, September 14th, President Bush issued a state of national emergency. And he said that the threat posed by the Al-Qaeda terrorist network risked the continuity operation of the United States government. In other words, the president believed that the operation of our country, our government, was at risk based on this attack on September 11th. Our grief has turned to anger and anger to resolution. Whether we bring our enemies to justice or bring justice to our enemies, justice will be done. Now, what we have to remember is that on September 11th, the number of people that were in Al-Qaeda was probably about 500 people. An organization of 500 people, frankly, brought us to our knees. And that's what happened when the COAS attacked. Uh, the USS Cole, a formidable fighting ship platform with millions and millions of dollars of armament and weapons, was attacked by two people in a small boat with some explosives, right? We're the most powerful military in the history of the world, uh, the most percentage of our gross national product towards the military intelligence community, and 19 hijackers with box cutters brought us to our knees. And so there was a sense of anger and a sense of rage and a sense of wanting to get revenge. Today, the president signed a big new anti-terrorism bill that would expand the government's ability to track down terrorists, but at some cost. This is what the president had to say today. This is a two-front war. It's a two-front war. And it's a war we're gonna win on both fronts, but make no mistake, the best way to make sure we protect our homeland is to succeed by bringing the terrorists abroad who try to strike us to justice. And this is when we, we turn to torture as an instrument of national policy, right? And, and so, so we made decisions that continue to affect us today and that led to the propagation of additional wars and additional deaths. 
that's what's troubling right now is the unintended consequence and the second and third order effects of decisions and once and once we go down that road it may be very difficult to recover from okay you ready the war in iraq in the streets of baghdad no less than the halls of congress or in the stump speeches of the campaign trail is in its essence political not military like the terrorists who hijacked american airliners and flew them into american buildings the fighters daily ambushing american troops are attacking not american military power but american will and thanks to the way president bush and his colleagues chose to build the case for war and the errors they've made in prosecuting it american will is an increasingly vulnerable target in the end defeat or victory in iraq will be judged not by who controls baghdad but by whether the war has left americans more secure than they were before it was undertaken suddenly the americans were caught in a kind of existential lonely world of the present where are we why are we fighting why did we come here when will we leave the enemy in iraq in other words is dynamic and changeable a shadowy and loose group of forces made up of former officers and soldiers of the vast security and intelligence organs of the ancien regime foreign born jihadis or ideological commandos who have slipped into iraq from saudi arabia syria and other islamic countries determined to confront and defeat the united states and perhaps increasingly young unemployed iraqis angry at the american occupation and the difficulties it has brought eager to avenge a relative's death or a personal affront or simply desperate to earn some easy money by hiring themselves out to attack americans when you look at the goals of al qaeda when they attacked the united states on 9/11 what was the goal exactly first of all to create this enormous image or kind of recruiting poster for jihadism the image of the towers falling the image of the towers attack but secondly it was to draw the united states out of its hole as one of the al qaeda theorists put it it was to in their ambition to drag the united states into a quagmire in afghanistan and like the soviets before them we are going to defeat the united states on the battlefield in afghanistan that was their thought well of course the us did not occupy afghanistan right away in the way they expected they did something much more beneficial to the jihadist cause they occupied iraq and they provided day after day month after month telegenic images of american troops abusing muslims this was exactly what al qaeda wanted to create i mean if you look at the images from abu ghraib they might as well be recruitment posters made on madison avenue for the jihadi cause the first result of that was the insurgency itself the second result of it is isis because isis of course is the child the descendant of al qaeda in iraq or al qaeda in mesopotamia or al qaeda of the two rivers whatever name you'd like to use it is a result of sunni hatred dissatisfaction and vulnerability at the new order in iraq on september 17th 2001 president bush issued a finding that one was supposed to know about to create the RDI program rendition detention interrogation program none of which were core competencies of the CIA and that allowed the CIA to institute what was later called the EIT program it is no secret that the united states used torture in the years following 911 but today the world learned exactly how often it used it 
and just how brutal it was. A Senate report details how it was so disturbing that some CIA officers tried to stop it, how the spy agency lied about what it was doing, and how, in the end, the torture produced nothing that helped disrupt terror plots or capture their leaders. They called it enhanced interrogation techniques. I call it the excuses to inflict torture because what we did is we decided that we would turn away from our constitutional courts. So, so they're called Article Three courts. Article Three of the Constitution uh, allows us to operate our federal court system. And so the president said on November 12, 2001, that the U.S. court system is not practicable and that it's not practicable to, to try terroristing. And that is an inaccurate statement in and of itself. The federal courts had been a very effective mechanism to try terroristing before. So you had a capability and a component in place that had previous experience investigating and prosecuting terrorists that was abandoned for a military commission process, which was untried and that a lot of people in the military objected to, but it was done because the administration was going down a road where they were going to ignore the Convention Against Torture, which we are a signatory to, which says that the prohibition against torture is absolute. It doesn't matter if you're under attack. It doesn't matter what your national security concerns are. Uh, the prohibition is absolute. Um, and and there, there are reasons for that. In addition to humanitarian law and everything else, it, it, the Geneva Conventions, it puts your troops in greater jeopardy. Right? It makes it harder for us to operate our military overseas. And so we operated, and this is the concern uh, I, I see now, with what's going on in Israel and Gaza, is after 9-11, decisions were made based on ignorance, arrogance, and fear. Right? Fear-driven decisions are not very good ones. When the president went to the World Trade Center on Friday, he said, the people who did this will hear from all of us soon. There's an expectation in the country that we're about to pay back big time quickly. Mm -hmm. What should the people, American people think or feel about that? I think the important thing here, Tim, is for people to understand that, that um, you know, things have changed since last Tuesday. The world's shifted in some respects. Clearly what we're faced with here is a situation where uh, terrorism has struck home in the United States. We've been subject to uh, targets of terrorist attacks before, especially overseas with our forces and, and American personnel overseas. But this time, because of what happened in New York and what happened in Washington, it's, um, uh, it's a qualitatively different set of circumstances. And you saw our, some of our policymakers who were trying to escape blame for what happened, blame for us being attacked. And, and you're hearing the same rhetoric in Israel, right? Who's to blame? for that attack. Uh, well, certainly Hamas is to blame for the attack, but what were the contributing factors that led to the escalation of tensions that resulted in this attack? You cannot meet a tactic with a tactic, right? You cannot kill your way out of this. It has to be met with a strategy. 
And so, you know, we, we learned some hard lessons, hopefully, in Afghanistan, where we went in there for revenge. We said we went in there for justice and we turned a populace against us. Our actions when we invaded Afghanistan, I believe, were righteous. We went to take out the element which was operating in Afghanistan that attacked us. We lost our way after that because after bin Laden escaped Tora Bora, we were left then not fighting Al-Qaeda, but a new enemy emerged and that's the Taliban. And the matter in which we treated the populace grew rise to additional adversaries from the general public. And that's certainly the concern that I have for things in the Gaza Strip. It's the enemy that you may be creating while Israel is looking into Gaza. Convoys of desperate people on foot or in cars, trucks and donkey carts are tonight still moving south out of Gaza City and the northern part of this tiny territory. Out of harm's way, or so they hope, though Hamas claims some convoys have been hit by airstrikes. This is Gaza City tonight in near total darkness, as you can see, after power was cut. Still being battered by bombs after Israel's directive at daybreak today, giving around a million people 24 hours to leave. As Western governments express their support for Israel, protests against the bombing of Gaza are getting louder. In Lebanon, where there's a large number of Palestinian refugees, people came out across the country to express solidarity. War will start pretty soon, and uh, it's going to be a long war that will last for 30, 40 days. But uh, soon enough, the land will be ours again. Palestine will be free again and again, and we, will, uh, we are beside her, and we will stay for the end. Hamas's massacre has triggered an unprecedented response from Israel. And here, the deputy leader of Hezbollah, Nayem Kassam, warned the axis of resistance would not remain silent. When the time comes for any action, we will carry it out. I'm looking at what's happening in Jordan. I'm looking at what's happening in Egypt. I'm looking at the geopolitical spectrum to see there are some governments uh, that ought to be very concerned with what's going on uh, in Israel and Gaza because this can trickle out into a much larger conflict area than anyone has ever hoped for or imagined. The history of terrorism as a tactic is not actually that long. It comes about historically at about the same time as the nation state comes about historically. And they're certainly very tied to each other. It's really important to understand the way that the Bush administration handled terrorism following 9-11 was a complete departure from how it had been handled previously by countries around the world, including the U.S., before that moment, the primary paradigm for thinking about terrorism, for combating terrorism, uh, was to think of it as a crime. Terrorism is a crime. Uh, hijacking is a crime. Killing is a crime. 
conspiracy to kill as a crime, bombing, kidnapping. These are things that are illegal and we have systems to prosecute and try people who do them. A really good example is the biggest terror attack that had happened on U.S. soil prior to 9-11 was the Oklahoma City bombing. If it seemed like war yesterday, the reinforcements showed up tonight. At the center of it all, of course, is the bombed out shell of the federal office building. And in its shadow, the exhausted, who for a day and a half now have sifted through its debris and counted its dead and seen up close why they call it terror. It's like a garbage pile. It's just, it's unbelievable. And everywhere, you, everywhere you dig, you find somebody. Everywhere. It's a very slow, tedious process of removing the debris and extricating the fatalities and searching for survivors. You know, you hope and you pray that every time you turn a stone, there'll be a survivor somewhere. The Oklahoma City bomber killed 168 people and destroyed a federal building. And what we did was we arrested him and tried him. Right, This was the, the consensus way to handle terrorism until 9-11. So the day after 9-11, is this moment of paradigm shift. George Bush gets on TV uh, and he says, these attacks are more than acts of terror, they're acts of war. And even in saying that, you can hear, he's saying acts of terror and acts of war are different things, right? This is more than an act of terror, it's an act of war. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Under international law, this was not an act of war. It's really important to know that was not the case. And just a few years earlier, the UN had reaffirmed, they'd said, isolated acts of terrorism do not reach the threshold of armed conflict. Uh, meaning if they couldn't do it again, and Al-Qaeda did not have the capacity to do it again at that time, it's not war. Another really important point about this like moment of paradigm shift is that it's a little nonsensical. Terrorism is not war. It's not war because there's no country to go to war against. It's not war because there's no army to go to war against. And also, terrorism is a tactic. It's a tactic that anyone can use. Any person, any group can pick up this tactic and use it, which makes it impossible to eliminate, right? Because anyone could start doing it. It doesn't matter if you destroy this group or that group. As long as people have motivation, to use that tactic, it's likely to come back. So the media had this really big task to accomplish. If we wanted to go to war on terrorism, the American populace needed to be convinced that this was the natural thing to do, this was the only possible thing to do, that this was deserved, that this would solve the problem that we had, um, would solve our nation's crisis of security, um, of feeling secure and of being secure after 9-11. And so you have, at that time, places like the New York Times, full steam ahead, publishing articles like The Militant, America the Vulnerable Meets a Ruthless Enemy. And Powell says it clearly, no middle ground on terrorism. And they're saying over and over again, this is a war, this is a war, this is a war, we're going to war. In the run-up to the war, the administration and its surrogates went into overdrive, pushing the narrative that Iraq and its leader, Saddam Hussein, posed an immediate and significant threat to the United States. 
Most of the media uncritically repeated dubious claims about weapons of mass destruction and possible links to Al-Qaeda, claims that were thoroughly debunked in the months and years that followed. So how complicit was the media in selling the Iraq war to the public? And has the press learned any lessons from past failures? We were a country that was paralyzed with fear. We were driven by bloodlust and revenge. And since then, the news media further consolidated, further synchronized its messaging. Um, I think Project Censor did this study showing how that 24-hour kind of broadcast um, was really perfected from 9-11. I think we saw like Anna Nicole Smith and then 9-11 was like the next time that it was like 24-7. Let's just never stop showing the horror and destruction of these towers, you know, falling and, and all of this. And then it just never stopped. It's like it, there is something to be said about that psychological control of like always having that beaten into your mind. It's a lot of the same rhetoric that you see now coming out of the same institutions um, about what's been happening in Israel and Gaza. And similar to what was happening then, a lot of the more staid voices that urged caution, that urged carefulness, that said, hey, we should be concerned about civilian deaths, are painted as extremists who support terror. Karine Jean-Pierre yesterday responded to a reporter's question about the White House's response to members of Congress's statements about the Israel-Palestine conflict, calling for a ceasefire, calling for the end to a killing, to the, all of the killing, because Israel right now is um, has dropped 6,000 plus bombs on a 141-square-foot piece of land, and hundreds of children have been confirmed dead. The death toll will continue. Um, it will only increase. They have given Palestinians 24 hours in Gaza to leave. That's impossible, and they know it. It's over a million people that they are asking to leave on these narrow roads that Israel entirely controls, by the way. Um, and a lot of Palestinians don't have cars because it's one of the poorest places on the planet. And some of them are maimed. There's hospitals that are being targeted too. And there's no electricity because Israel's cut it off via the blockade. There is no fuel because the fuel has been blocked out. So if you have a they car- They announced they're gonna cut off the internet too. Oh yeah, there's- um, you can't even reach people right now. So how are they supposed to know? Word of mouth? I mean, but, the, but 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 giving them the 24 hours, it's just a cover for the mass murder that they're about to engage in. It is the most common sense, humane thing in the world. And the squad has should have everybody's solidarity, especially Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who are Muslim members, and especially Rashida Tlaib, who has freaking family over there. Instead... We get this. There have been some members of Congress who have called for a ceasefire and they have not gone as far as uh, backing the administration's call for support for Israel. So look, uh, I've seen some of those statements this weekend uh, and we're gonna continue to be very clear. We believe they're wrong. Uh, we believe they're repugnant and we believe they're disgraceful. Uh, our, our condemnation belongs squarely with terrorists who have brutally murdered, raped, kidnapped hundreds hundreds of Israelis. Uh, there can be no equivocation about that. There are not two sides here. There are not two sides. 
We have to think about what motivates people to passively support or even join terror groups. Why do people use terrorism? And I always say use terrorism, I don't say become terrorists, um, because being a terrorist is not an immutable state of being. People are not born terrorists. People who use terror sometimes abandon it, often abandon it, typically abandon it, when other avenues for reaching their aims are available. And I think that part of the danger of the war on terror and of the language that we use about terrorism is saying, well, they're all terrorists, as though that is some kind of type of person. And it's really not. And I think we have to think seriously about what reasons people have for using these tactics. When people have done research on the root causes of terrorism, they usually say it's something like political instability, unequal access to land or resources, living under an extractive economy, feeling oppressed, and not having any other way to get your needs or, or political opinion heard. Life in the economy in Gaza are in a shambles. In 2018, the World Bank warned the economy of the Gaza Strip had shrunk by 8%. They're facing a major crisis that also deepens the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. This has all occurred despite the reality that Israel dismantled and removed its settlements from Gaza, and the Palestinians in Gaza are now living through the longest pause between Israeli invasions. Though Israel's economic war and blockade and sanctions have continued with a devastating effect. While the Israeli invasions of 2008, 2012, 2014 killed thousands and destroyed property and infrastructure, the World Bank report shows that the economic damage inflicted on Gaza has intensified when the tanks have stopped rolling. So, yeah, there are certainly some sick people who just sort of like, like violence. But really, what allows terror groups to operate is having a base of support. Um, it's having people who allow the group to meet in their homes or neighborhoods, who raise or donate money, who are willing to operate training camps. And even if we arrest or kill the leaders of these groups, there will still be supporters who are willing to use that tactic in a different way. The Israeli government has um, announced, as a part of this bombing campaign, a they call it a complete siege of Gaza. Uh, this is distinguish it from the uh, uh, major siege. Right, that. right. As opposed, the slow moving um, violence that have been has been happening for decades. This is Israel's defense minister uh, Gallant who is one of the fascists in office there announcing this siege. And uh, he's he's not speaking in English here, but you can read the captions. And for the podcast audience, I will read it as well. Um, it's a short clip, but he refers to uh, the Israelis fighting, quote, human animals. I have ordered a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no fuel, no water. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we will act accordingly. The concern is when you start to dehumanize the people that you're fighting against, and you consider them less than human. And that's what happened after 9-11 with us. You know, we became as brutal as our enemies. We became brutal as our adversaries. They used suicide bombers. Uh, we used drones. And you know, the collateral damage 
from each of those had long range consequences. And so that once you start dehumanizing and feeling that they are a less value, then it could lead to an escalation of, of war crimes, of events, because you consider them uh, less of a standard. American war crimes has its own Wikipedia page. Torture, extrajudicial killings, illegal detentions, they've done it all. Let me start with Iraq. Who can forget the Abu Ghraib prison? This is where America perfected their war crimes. Prisoners were tortured, raped, sodomized and killed. All of this is documented. In fact, it was authorized by the US government. Their Justice Department released a memo before the Iraq war. It's called the Torture Memos. What did this document say? One, that US officials cannot be charged with war crimes. And two, that enhanced interrogation techniques can be used on prisoners. What are these enhanced techniques? Basically a clever way of saying torture. And two pictures sum up what America did in Abu Ghraib. Here's one of them. The prisoner is made to stand on a box. His head is covered and his fingers are connected to an electric wire. Do you know what his interrogators told him? If you fall off the box, you will be electrocuted. And, you know, the irony is, and the shame is, the attack was horrific. I mean, you know, Hamas, uh, their indiscriminate attack on Israel were atrocities. We have to make sure that we don't commit atrocities in response to that. Once you head down that road of higher escalation, um, bad things can happen. And, you know, the lessons that we hopefully learned in the United States was that we went to war with Iraq based on bad information. We wanted to go to war with Iraq in the worst way, and we went to war with Iraq in the worst way. We had Colin Powell say there was Al Qaeda in Iraq, and that was the product of a tortured prisoner, Ibn Sheikh Alibi, the Emir of the Calden training camp who I wanted to bring to justice before military commissions at Guantanamo. Instead, he was ghosted, sent to Egypt, tortured, gave the answers that the politicians wanted, and was turned over to Libya and allegedly committed suicide in his cell when, when uh, Gaddafi was still ruling uh, Libya. And Colin Powell said that uh, yellow cake, uranium, and, and other weapons of mass destruction, which did not exist. 20 years ago this month, on the eve of war, a mild-mannered Swedish foreign minister turned UN chief weapons inspector gave his now infamous report to the UN Security Council on whether or not Iraq was in possession of WMDs. His name? Hans Blix. And his conclusion? He needed more time. It will still take some time to verify sites and items, analyze documents, interview relevant persons, and draw conclusions. It would not take years, nor weeks, but months. That's all he wanted, just a few more months to confirm that Iraq had been disarmed. But America and Britain wanted war. President Bush and Prime Minister Blair did not care that Hans Blix wanted more time, and they invaded anyway. Now, as we all know, there were no weapons of mass destruction. The CIA's final report confirmed that just two years later in 2005. 
But why wait a few months for Blix to tell you that when you could wait a few years for the CIA to do it after you've already invaded and killed lots of people? That's a concern. And then when you get to the to the larger geopolitical area, there's a lot of rhetoric now about Iran. Right? From the US perspective, a US-centric view, we we now have wars going on in Ukraine with Russia involved. In in Israel is at war in Gaza. Uh, and there is Iranian backing of Hamas. It doesn't mean the government is backing it, but you know, there are factions within there that are supporting the activities there. There's a, a telling quote from a British intelligence official who is unnamed. Um, and he said that the notion of a war on terrorism suggests to Muslims abroad that the U.S. is fighting a war on Muslims. And the response has to be jihad or holy war. War convinces people to do jihad. And I think it's inarguable that if you believed that someone was, well, I don't know you. It's inarguable that for most people, if we believe someone to be doing a war on us, uh, and if that belief is accompanied by someone that I know being bombed, shot, killed, is accompanied by soldiers at my door or on my street, I'm going to be very interested in combating that. So when people feel like we're at war against them, it is their natural human response to try to protect themselves or fight back. And so when we bring war and violence to other people's homes, to other people's countries, we shouldn't be surprised when they become interested in joining these same sorts of terror groups. Also, when we bring war and violence to people's countries, we destroy families, we destroy legitimate occupation, legitimate employment. We destroy avenues for people to have a normal, safe, healthy life. And people who are destabilized, who don't have family connections, who don't have a sense of community, are really great recruits for terror groups. Because they have nothing to lose. The United States of America is an enemy of those who aid terrorists and of the barbaric criminals who profane a great religion by committing murder in its name. We stand united with people around the world who've been targeted by terrorists, from a school in Pakistan to the streets of Paris. We will continue to hunt down terrorists and dismantle their networks, and we reserve the right to act unilaterally as we have done relentlessly since I took office, to take out terrorists who pose a direct threat to us and our allies. We will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Historically speaking, states have been most effective at ending terror groups uh, when they use models that value integration into the political sphere or policing. So there have been a couple different, as I mentioned, terrorism is a relatively recent phenomenon, and there are databases of every terror group 
Definitions aside, I'll let you know the databases all use different definitions, but they come up with a similar list of groups. And it's something like 687 groups across history. There have been a couple different analyses of those groups and what has caused them to end. And all of those analyses have basically come to the same conclusion, that most frequently, when terror groups end, they do it by entering into the political sphere. They become a political party and believe and feel that they can meet their political objectives in that way. This has been the case with 43% of terror groups across human history. And what happens is they choose to abandon violent tactics because they feel like they can meet their goals legislatively or in other, some other legitimate way. This tends to be more feasible when the group has a specific and limited strategy or goal. For instance, you have ISIS and they're like, we would like to create a whole new state across three or four existing states. That's a little less achievable. And it's unlikely that they're going to be able to do that through legislative politics. But a number of prominent groups have successfully made this transition from terror organization to political party. I think the most famous is the PIRA, which was subsumed under its political branch in Fein. We are following breaking news at this hour out of the Middle East, where Palestinian officials say dozens of people are dead following an airstrike on a refugee camp in Gaza. Authorities say the strike hit a heavily populated neighborhood within the camp. For the first time in years, a Palestinian refugee camp is under Israeli curfew. A raid that began in the early hours of Thursday in Nur Shams near Tulkarim in the north of the occupied West Bank is showing no signs of ending. The violence in the Middle East, in Gaza in particular, has unfortunately expanded beyond Israel and Gaza and is now spilling over specifically into the West Bank where protesters have grown significantly since the explosion at the Al-Ahli Hospital. Now the Palestinian Health Ministry has said that Israeli forces killed seven Palestinians during raids on the Nur al-Shams refugee camp on Thursday. Health officials said that one of the victims was a 16-year-old boy, something you should keep in mind as I give you more details, especially in regard to the excuses used in regard to the killing of these individuals. The Palestinian Red Crescent said its medics treated 25 people in Nur Shams, the majority for gunshot wounds. Now the Israeli military said in a statement that it was continuing to operate in the Nur al-Shams camp to thwart terror activity. So I'm guessing the excuse in shooting and killing a 16 year old was that he's a terrorist, I'm sure. Now sadly, that's just the latest in a trend of increasing violence. At least 61 people, including children, have been killed in the occupied West Bank since October 7th when Hamas launched its unprecedented surprise assault on Israel, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health there. More than 1,250 have been injured. And just last week, armed settlers attacked an apartment, leaving four Palestinians dead. I think it's important to be clear that what the Israeli government is enacting right now is a genocide of Palestinians. They're not differentiating between Hamas and other people in Gaza. Half of people in Gaza are children. The UN has said this. 
It's clear to anyone watching that that's the case. And the dehumanizing language, the collective punishment, it's unconscionable for any reason. Now, the siege is being accompanied by a ferocious bombing campaign. In just the first six days of the war, Israel dropped 6,000 bombs in the densely populated Gaza Strip. Israel has stopped reporting the number of bombs being dropped, but the intense pace has continued. Last night, my wife and I learned that someone we know well lost two family members and four of their children killed in bombing in Gaza. So they are not yet included in the most recent death toll reported by the United Nations yesterday which says the number of dead has risen to over 8,300 people, 70% of them women and children, including 3,457 children. These are UN figures. According to UN figures, that is about six times more children killed in three weeks in Gaza than the number of children killed in Ukraine during the entire war there. The executive director of UNICEF, Catherine Russell, said at the current rate, more than 420 children are being killed or injured in Gaza each day, a number, she said, which should shake us to our core. As a Jewish person, it would be unconscionable to me, even if this was the only possible way to keep Jews safe. More disturbingly, it's not, right? We know from looking at history, from having attempted a war on terror for the past 20 years, that it doesn't work. War is not an effective way to end terror groups. It's not an effective way to end terrorism, because new groups are likely to pop up. I don't necessarily condone Hamas. I don't condone their tactics. Neither does every Palestinian under the sun, right? It's an insane exaggeration to conflate those two groups. But the reality is that some people do. Some Palestinians do support Hamas. And the reason that they do that is that they feel every day oppressed by the Israeli government. They feel every day that they cannot enter or exit Gaza without permission from the government. This is Gaza specifically. That Israel limits critical life-saving supplies, water, electricity, fuel, medicine. And Hamas exists because people feel it's their only chance for liberation. And it's their only chance for their children to lead full human lives. Uh, for their families to return to land that they once owned. Just a few years ago, there was a big unarmed protest in Gaza, the Great March of Return. On the first day, 40 to 50,000 mostly peaceful protesters gathered at the perimeter fence that was keeping them inside of Gaza. There were families, there were children, uh, people were flying kites, sure, some were throwing rocks. And these protests continued for a year And during that year, the Israeli security forces routinely fired brutally on demonstrators, aiming for the knees. Uh, It came out that there was a soldier who bragged about taking out 42 knees in one day. Peaceful protests, mass protests, were not effective in getting Gazans, getting Palestinians the things that they need in order to lead full human lives. Well, the U.S. military yesterday, um, in a a pretty unusual move, announced that one of their 
nuclear capable submarines is operating now in the region. The Ohio class submarines are capable of launching um, ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads. There are also several that are able to launch precision guided cruise missiles, so not nuclear ones. It's not clear which type of the submarine is actually operating in the region, but it's significant that the US has decided to announce that it's there because usually the submarine operations and where they are is a, is a secret. And that's obviously a message to Iran, uh, to Hezbollah, not to escalate because that could draw the US into this war. The biggest fear is that we draw Iran into a military conflict. That would be consequential uh, and, and there are there are some who are probably already advocating for that. What we have to realize looking at our history is these wars and invasions are not winnable. Right? We didn't win in Vietnam. Right? We, we said we were going to Afghanistan and we lost that one 20 years later. Taliban are back in control. We went into Iraq saying we'd be greeted as liberators. The oil would pay for everything. Uh, you know, where hundreds of thousands of lives were lost there. Uh, and so there, there's not a military solution to a geopolitical problem. This is going to take a lot of people to go in a room and try to sort out whose equities need to be protected in this. And, you know, there's fault on both sides and there's a lot of harm done by both sides. But there needs to be people to sit down and come up with what's the best solution so that we reduce the number of lives that are going to be lost in this war. Thanks for listening, everybody. I know this is a tough episode. This was a difficult one to produce for us. Um, as Chris mentioned at the, at the top in the introduction, this is probably one of our most important episodes and we've done so many. Um, looking to so many different aspects of society, but perpetual war and the consequences of that have been one of the themes that we've discussed on this podcast for you know four years now. And there's a few things that I'm reminded about as this conflict is ongoing, a conflict in which we just reached um, a horrific death toll. Over 10,000 people in Gaza have died, um, according to estimates. And just, just to make note of those estimates that you'll hear a lot in the media, that those are Hamas numbers, which is true. Hamas runs the health ministry in Gaza, but journalists have done some work to try to cross-reference those the names that were released and to see if those those numbers are accurate. And in some of those cases, they are. So uh, 10,000 is just a horrific number in just a matter of weeks um, already. And these are largely civilians, 4,000 children, according to the data. Um, so it's just really, it's just really difficult to, to comprehend Going back to 9-11, like holding the mirror of 9-11 to this, to this conflict, um, I'm reminded by Representative Barbara Lee, who was the only person to vote against the authorization for use of military force. In her famous speech, she said, as we act, let us not become the evil we deplore. And it's, it's, it's a message that still resonates with me every time I think about the global war on terror, perpetual war, forever wars, whatever you want to call it. Over this time, since 2001, over 4.5 million people died directly or indirectly because of this war on terror. And it's just been so horrific and just so many, so much despair and sadness. And um, watching this unfold again 
just it's just it hurts to be honest the reason why we wanted to do, to do this episode is just to remind people of just like all the things that were done in our name to justify a war on terror um and it's not even just like the blood that was spilled i've been rereading a lot of things chris over the last few weeks like doing this episode but just also just to remind myself about everything that transpired over the last 20 or so years and i picked up a book called rogue justice it was ba- it's basically about um all the things that we've done legally or illegally uh since uh 9-11 and here's just a passage from that book Torture had been sanctioned at the highest levels of government. Indefinite detention, even for Americans, had been embraced as essential to the nation's security. An offshore prison had been created to bypass the protections of the rule of law. Mass warrantless surveillance had been used against Americans who were not suspected of criminal behavior and overseas assassinations of terrorism suspects, including at least one American citizen, had been launched. Again, these are just like some examples. This is not even everything that happened. It doesn't even mention the drone campaign that went on to kill so many innocent people as well. So I just want to recall just a lot of the horrific things that happened and just to warn that these things could happen again. And this could, if, if 9-11, what unfolded after that went on for more than 20 years, you can imagine what's, what could happen if this um, becomes a, a broader war and conflict. We wanted to end this episode also with a video from Tanisi Coates. Chris, you'll you'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but just what were your some of your thoughts as we um, end this episode? Yeah, I mean, I, I echo everything you just said, and it's hard to, to to put it in better context. But I just want to bring this all back to the beginning of the episode, and we started off with the axis of evil speech by President Bush, and its resurrection really by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. You know, 22 years apart, yet so similar in the themes. And, you know, September 11th, uh, you know, those attacks resulted in sweeping expansions to the U.S. military, the surveillance state, the war machine, the military industrial complex, and assaults on the very freedoms our nation was founded upon and cherishes as enshrined in the Constitution. And as Rashad said, you know, an estimated more than 4 million people have been killed in the subsequent and ever-expanding war on terror that was launched in response. And I just want to take a moment for you all to just think about that for a split second and try to really absorb it. More than 4 million people dead. You know, how many out of that figure were actually those who planned those attacks or were planning more? Several dozen? Several hundred? Several thousand? You know, a a word that's being tossed around right now in the context of what's happening in Gaza is disproportionate. And as Rashad said, I mean, there's no question the perpetrators demand accountability. After all, they're the ones that slaughtered the innocent to begin with. Yet we just want to remind what what we also said at at the top, which was along the lines of atrocities don't justify more atrocities. And as Rashad said, you know, we're going to end this with a clip. And, and in it, he talks about when when he went to the West Bank and he had heard over and over throughout the years, the conflict is very complex. There's a lot of complexities that you're going to witness when you're there. And he starts off and you'll hear him. But the biggest takeaway he had was just how uncomplicated and uncomplex he found the situation to be. Yep, that's perfect. So 
before we get to Tanisi Coates, the you know famous journalist, author, writer, just when you hear politicians speak, think about their motives, think about what they want accomplished, also what they want to do to save their own political careers. These are all things that we need to think about when we're listening to lawmakers make pronouncements about what they want to do and also what they want to do in your name. So thanks, Chris, for doing this episode with me. And we're going to leave you all with some audio from Ta-Nehisi Coates. I spent 10 days um, in Palestine in the occupied territories and in in Israel proper. Um, I've had the great luxury over the past 10 years of seeing uh, a few countries. Uh, I have not spent more time or seen more of uh, another country or another territory than than I did uh, this summer. Um, I think what shocked me the most was uh, in any sort of um, opinion piece or reported piece or or whatever you want to call it that I've read uh, about Israel and about the conflict with the Palestinians, there's a word that comes up uh, all the time and it is complexity. That and it's uh, closely related uh, adjective complicated. And so while I had my skepticisms and I had my suspicions of the Israeli government of the occupation, um, what I expected was that I would find a situation in which it was hard to discern right from wrong. It was hard to understand the morality at play. Um, it was hard to understand the conflict. And perhaps the most shocking thing was uh, I immediately understood uh, what was going on over there. Probably the best example I, I, I can think of is, is, is the second day uh, when we went to Hebron and, and, and the reality of the occupation uh, became clear. We were driving uh, out of East Jerusalem. I was with uh, the Palestinian, uh, the, was with Palfest. Um, and we were driving out of East Jerusalem uh, into the West Bank. And, you know, you could see the settlements and they would point out the settlement. And it suddenly dawned on me that I was in a region of the world where some people could vote and some people could not. And that was obviously very, very familiar to me. I got to Hebron and we got out as a group of writers and we were given a tour by our Palestinian guide. And we got to uh, a certain street and he said to us, I can't walk down this street. If you want to continue, you have to continue without me. And, and, and that was shocking to me. And we, we, we walked down the street and we came back and there was a, a market area. Uh, Hebron is very, very poor. It wasn't always very poor, but it's, it's very, very poor. It's a market area has been shut down, but there are a few vendors there that, that, that I wanted to support. And I was walking to try to get to the vendor and I was stopped at a checkpoint. Checkpoints all through the city. The checkpoints obviously all through the West Bank. Uh, your mobility is, is, is completely uh, inhibited and the mobility of, of, of the Palestinians is totally inhibited. And I was walking to the checkpoint and an Israeli uh, guard uh, stepped out, probably about the age of my son. And he said to me, what's your religion, bro? And I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really religious. And he said, come on, stop messing around. What is your religion? I said, I'm, I'm not playing. I'm not, I'm not really religious. And it became clear to me that unless I professed my religion and the right religion, I wasn't going to be allowed to walk forward. So he said, well, okay, so what was your parents' religion? I said, well, they weren't that religious either. He says, what were your, what are, what were your grandparents' religion? And I said, my grandmother was a Christian. And then he allowed me to pass. And it became very, very clear to me what was going on there. 
And I have to say, it, it, it was quite familiar. Again, I was in a territory where your mobility is inhibited, where your voting rights are inhibited, where your right to the water is inhibited, where your right to housing is inhibited, and it's all inhibited based on ethnicity. And that sounded extremely, extremely familiar to me. And so the most shocking thing about my time over there was how uncomplicated it actually is. Now, I'm not saying the details of it are not complicated. History is always complicated. Present events are always complicated. But the way this is reported in the Western media is as though one needs a PhD in Middle Eastern studies to understand the basic morality of holding a people in a situation in which they don't have basic rights, including the right that we treasure most, the franchise, the right to vote, and then declaring that state a democracy. It's actually not that hard to understand. It's actually quite familiar to those of us uh, with a familiarity to African, with, uh, to African American history. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy, Prophet of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick for